on February 6, 2023, a 7.8 earthquake struck southern Turkey and northern Syria. I grew up in earthquake country, so a 5 earthquake is eh, it's kind of a deal. A 6 is a bigger deal, and a 7 is a big deal, especially to a country like Turkey. It was the Greatest earthquake they'd experienced since 1939. 14 million people were affected. 58,000 people died. And in a matter of seconds, whole city blocks were leveled. 19 days later, on February 25th, 184 people were arrested and indicted for failing to observe building codes and for shoddy craftsmanship as they built buildings quickly to house thousands of people. You see, foundation matters. One act of foolishness, one act of desiring for speed or desiring to just get a job done, one act in a singular moment, has the ability to bring much destruction upon people's lives. And now 184 people have to give an account for their one act of foolish and quick decisions that brought destruction to 58,000 people. Just one act has the ability to undermine everything in your life. And that's what the author of Ecclesiastes is going to try to help us this morning. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, starting in verse 13 and going through chapter 10, verse 20. So if you don't have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn with me there. Uh, If you don't have one, there should be one under a chair or in a pew back in front of us. And Ecclesiastes is about halfway through the Bible. You get to Psalms and then Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and you're looking for the big number nine. And we're going to be in verses 13 all the way through chapter 10, verse 20, really trying to zero in on this idea of foolishness or this idea of folly, which I think is massively important for us today because the world is touting a way of wisdom That is utter foolishness. A way of wisdom that seeks your good. And as these 184 contractors and building inspectors are finding out, it felt good for a moment. And now there's a judgment that is coming. And so my hope this morning is that we actually can see what folly looks like. And that as seeing this folly, we can begin to chart a path by God's grace to avoid this folly. And what our author is going to help us this morning to see is this simple point, that a foot of folly, not much, a foot of folly can undermine the foundation for life. Just a little bit can bring your entire life come crashing down. And we need to understand this because right now our world is telling us all, all, all sorts of, uh, giving us all sorts of wisdom-like sayings like, hey, follow your heart or you only live once. 
And we are experiencing the destructive nature of those sayings and that mindset in our culture, in our lives today. So I want to help you guard against that. And that's what the author is trying to help us to guard against. And so with that, would you stand with me? If you're able, it's a longer section, but would you stand with me in honor of reading God's Word this morning? So Ecclesiastes chapter 9, starting in verse 13. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise and quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest." There is an evil that I've seen under the sun, as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is in Dangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princess feasts in the morning, Happy are you, O land, when your king is a son of the nobility, and your princess feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine, for gla wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich." For a bird of the air will carry your voice, and some, or some winged creature tell the matter. This is the word of the Lord. All God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. So we're about three quarters of the way through 
the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're really trying to hone in on how do we have wisdom that applies to the confusing nature of life. I, I was talking with a pastor a few weeks ago, and he was describing how Proverbs is, is really this idea of, of principles for life. And Ecclesiastes is really kind of that gut punch to life that says, okay, take those principles, but life doesn't always work out just like that. It talks more about how life actually goes by pulling back the curtain. And in the middle of pulling back the curtain, we described a couple of weeks ago that sometimes life feels like you're driving in fog. If you've ever driven in a thick fog... You don't know where to go, or you're not quite sure where the road will turn, and the way to get through the fog is to look at the reflectors in the middle of the road to guide you home. And we need to look to the Lord, who is the great reflector that will actually guide us to our eternal home with Him forever. And so this morning... To help us and guide us in that direction, the author is going to show us uh, two realities of folly that we have to overcome, and then the way in which we actually overcome those realities. So let's look at these two realities of folly. The first reality is the power of folly. So when I was a kid, well, still today, but when I was a kid, my favorite NBA basketball team was the Sacramento Kings. And if you know anything about the Kings... They were terrible for years and years and years and years and years. But for some reason, without a doubt, they could always give the Chicago Bulls a run for its money. I I don't know what it was, but for some reason, the Bulls had a hard time actually beating one of the worst teams in the league. Isn't that so true of life? That something that you would expect would be easy actually becomes really hard and difficult. Something that you expect that, that would be small or irrelevant becomes mighty. That's what we see in this passage. Look at verse 13. The author starts by reminding us of the power of wisdom. And notice what he says in verse 13. He says, I have also... Well, clearly, by the word also, he's referring us to what he has already shown us, right? And what did he show us last time? Last time, he talked about how wisdom has shocking truth to it, that sometimes the fastest do not always win the race. Uh, I know many of you were like me watching NASCAR last night. Well, let me tell you, the fastest car did not win. That's life, though. We have a a grid that the fast should win, and and yet they don't. And the author is continuing this theme, but now he's using a different example. So look with me again at verse 13. He says, I've seen also this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. Well, what's this example? He shows us in verse 14 and following. It's almost like he's telling us a parable, like a grandfather to his grandchild, and he's telling this parable. There, there was a little city, it was tiny, not much power, with few men, not a massive army. You know, it's not like the Roman Empire or anything. And a great king, so 
tiny city, few people, great king, comes in and besieges it. If you don't know, the former tactic would be to surround the city with your army and essentially choke off any way for that city to get help from the outside, get food from the outside, get water from the outside. And so this great king has come, has laid besiege against this city, built great siege works against it. And in this moment, you and I have seen this story a million times and we know who wins, right? The king. But notice what happens. Notice the, the power that wisdom has. Look at verse 15. But there is found in it a poor, not much money, I'm assuming not much in his life in general, but he was wise. May we see the power of wisdom here because he, by his wisdom, delivered city. One poor person, by his wisdom, delivered an entire city. When I was growing up, I, uh, many of you know my family heritage is Dutch, and so we heard this story from the Netherlands that is a fable that uh, one night in a particular city, if you don't know, the Netherlands actually sits under the sea level, and they have all these dikes to keep out the the water from flooding the country. And one particular night, a little boy was skating on the ice when he saw a hole in the dike. And knowing what would happen, that the water would gush through that hole and flood the city, he actually stuck his finger in the dike to plug the hole. Until the townspeople found him the next day and realized what had happened. And they came and rescued him and plugged up the hole, and now everybody knows him, and everybody praises his name. And hundreds of years later, I, as a little boy, hear this fable and this story. It, it's this heroic story. You'd imagine this kind of person being on the cover of Time magazine, wouldn't you? The man of the year, the man of the century, this kind of hero Cinderella story. And it really just follows what Scripture tells us about wisdom, doesn't it? If you read Psalm 1, which is really a, a channel into seeing all of the, of the Psalms, we, we read there that uh, we are to not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor see, sit in the seat of scoffers, but rather delight in the law of God. Proverbs 1, 7 tells us that it's fools that despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 tells us to... Uh, trust in the Lord and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. So we need to see that, that wisdom has power, wisdom is good, and wisdom is right, and we should desire wisdom. And yet, notice how quickly it is forgotten. Look at verse 15. Yet, no one, not even one, there's a small city, few people, the dude just saved the city. I mean, you would think that that's a story that gets around, but not even one 
remembered that poor man. He, he is quickly forgotten. Look at verse 6. But I say that wisdom is better than might. So, so it's better to have wisdom than the strongest strength you can imagine. Even though a poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. Now, why would people forget about the power of this poor, wise man? Why would they despise wisdom? Why do you and I despise wisdom? Because if we're honest, wisdom tells us what we're doing wrong. If we're honest, wisdom tells us that we are limited. Wisdom tells us uh, what we don't want to hear. Wisdom tells us that you are weak. The answer is not in you. The answer is outside of you. That's not a message many of us like to hear. That's not a message our world in 2023 is proclaiming. What's the message they're proclaiming? The power and the solution is in you. The problem is outside of you. We like that. I can sleep at night knowing you're the problem and I'm the solution. It's a lot harder to sleep at night knowing I'm the problem and you're the solution. Or you can direct me to the actual solution. You see, the wisdom of the world likes to tell you what you want to hear. In fact, Paul warned Timothy in 2 Timothy, at the end of time, people are going to gather for themselves preachers that itch their ears. Just tell them what they want to hear. Be careful of that, Timothy. We are a people that like ease and we like comfort. We don't like to be challenged. And so we despise wisdom and we close up our ears to the wise man's words. But notice the beauty of this wisdom. Look at verses 17 to 18. The, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. The author is just trying to help us to understand how a wise person typically acts and how a fool acts. A fool is noticeable. A fool likes praise. A fool makes his announcement or her announcement to the group that I am here. A fool wants to shout off of the mountaintops their opinion so that everybody can see them. But it's the wise person that is often the quiet one. It's the wise person that is often unnoticeable until that very moment in which you need to speak. I remember a number of years ago watching a couple of pastors uh, at a round table talking about uh, an element of ministry. And two of the pastors are known to be very bombastic, very in your face, very brash about how they talk about things. And as they were talking with this third pastor, you could very quickly see two of them ganging up on that third and the third just saying, yeah, you know, by God's grace, he, he wasn't taking offense, but he was just, okay. Fast forward 10 years ago or 10 years later, Two of those pastors have disqualified themselves from ministry. I'll let you figure out which two it is. That third guy 
is still ministering to this day and has had a massive impact on many pastors and even our church to this day. Wisdom is not brash. It's quiet. It's thoughtful. I often find that those who are the loudest against somebody else's sin, it's almost like I want to set a timer before they fall into that same sin. And so we need to be careful about how we think and talk about others because notice how easy this folly sneaks in and just destroys everything. Look at verse 18. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one. Man, think about it. Wisdom can overcome the most powerful nations of the world. But one sinner, just one, destroys much good. Paul tells us something similar in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, that bad company corrupts good character. Who you are allowing into your life to speak into your life, even at a distance, even through your phones, be it media, social media, news, whatever it is, even at a distance, Whatever you are allowing to come in and to influence you has the ability to lead you away from the ways of God. And I want to warn you to be mindful of what you're allowing to influence your thoughts in your mind. Find people who love Jesus, who love his word, and then submit their lives to his word and spend time with them and allow them to influence you. Even dead people. I'm finding out dead people are really good friends. Because I know their entirety of their life. There have been many people who have failed me. They sounded good. They sounded right. And then they ended up in sin. And it's like, man, everything was just eradicated. But dead followers of Christ, I know their life. And I know... Okay, you are faithful to the end. Praise God. So even find dead people to read. If you want to know some dead people to read, I'd love to tell you about them. But, but even read them and, and allow them to speak into your life so that it reframes your mind. Because notice how important this is. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off stench. If you've ever smelled perfume, it is pretty strong. And yet a dead fly has the ability to counteract the perfume. It's, it's like a little bit of cinnamon in a baked good. You can tell when someone puts a pinch of cinnamon in anything. And that's exactly what happens when in verse 1, a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. You can have a ton of wisdom and a ton of honor and just a little tiny bit, a pinch of folly gives a stench to it all. And why does this matter? Look at verse 2 and 3. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool to the left. Like these fools, this matters because foolishness leads us in a wrong direction. You know, Jesus, uh, towards the end of his life, 
he asks the disciples and he says, who do the people say I am? And they, they say, oh, John the Baptist or Elijah or another prophet. And he says, who do you say I am? You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And she's like, man, Peter, you get it. Awesome. But I got to die. And in typical Peter fashion, he's like, come here, Jesus. We, we got to have a little, little counsel over here. Let me tell you, you, you are the Christ, but you don't die. You ride into Jerusalem and kick the, the Romans out. That's how this works. And Jesus so kindly says, get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on things of God, but on things of the world. And he says, if anyone is going to follow me, he must pick up his cross. It's not a cute keychain that is actually a symbol of death to this life. You pick up your cross, you follow me because, and listen to this, anyone who wishes to gain the world will lose his life. But if you give up the world, you gain eternal life. And so we need to be a a people who realize that foolishness says, gain the world. And Jesus says, but you die. Wisdom says, give up all this. I mean, look around. Give it 30 years. All of this is going to end up in a junkyard. And there's some ladies here that did some massive cleaning in the kitchen over the weekend. There are some things and items in that kitchen that I'm sure somebody who walked in this building said that is a very important item for this building to house. And somewhere in the last 30 years, we now get these ladies walking in saying, that item needs to go in the trash. So recognize that that is the reality of life. But then notice how the fool lives. Verse 3, the fool, even when he walks on the road, lacks sense. And he says to everyone, he is a fool. Have you ever been around somebody like that? That you just look at him and you're like, ah, no, you're a fool. Maybe I'm the only rude one here, but I mean, I've been around people. I'm like, hey, you opened your mouth enough for me to know I don't want to listen to you. That's what he's saying. When we live for the world, when we live for foolish things, like everybody knows it. Everybody can see it. That's why you and I need to be in relationship with one another. Because if we're honest, if I'm honest, there are times I open my mouth and I'm telling you I'm a fool. I need you to speak into my life, to sharpen me, to say, yeah, that was foolish. Let's go this direction. That's why we commit as a church. We commit together to speak into each other's lives because we have blinders. But, but how do we do this? We don't walk around like a police officer handing tickets out to everyone and saying, you are foolish here, you are foolish here, you are foolish. No, we have relationship. We sit down over coffee, over dinner, over lunch, and we just say, how are you doing? I've got a question. I, I could be wrong. I've just noticed this. Is there any truth to that? Take, take time to pray. I, I, I don't know all things, but take time to pray. And let's talk about it again. That's how we engage one another. 
with gentleness, with respect. Because if we don't, look at what happens in verse 4. If the anger of a ruler rises against you, don't leave your place. So if the ruler is angry against you, don't, don't respond with anger. Instead, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. The Proverbs say that a kind word turns away wrath. Ever been in a battle like that? Someone's mean. You have a harsh word. What happens? They have a harsh word. Then you have a harsh word. And pretty soon, you're on the circular path, unable to get off. It's like a merry-go-round that never stops. But a kind word can turn away that wrath. And so the author just shows us right away the, the power that folly has in our life. Like it has the ability to lead us to not listen to wisdom. It has the ability to bring much destruction on our lives. And so we need to be a people who are guarding its influence. I once heard a pastor say that sin takes you farther than what you want to go and keeps you longer than you want to stay. Let me say that again. Sin takes you farther than you want to go and keeps you longer than what you want to stay. The power of foolishness and folly is something that we have the inability to escape outside of the power of God. And so we must guard against it. And so one of the ways we guard against it is by seeing our second point, which is the path of folly. We need to see the path that folly takes. And path, the, the path folly takes is really four paths that the author shows us. There's a strangeness. There's a speed. There's a speech and there's a self-indulgence. So let's look at these. The strangeness of folly. Look at verses 5 through 7. Just a, a weird way in which folly works out in our life. Verse 5, there's an evil that I've seen under the sun. Well, what's this evil? It's like there's an error coming from a king. Okay, well, what's this error? Verse 6. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. Verse 7, I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. Like, you and I have a grid for life, don't we? And when that grid meets with reality, we are perplexed and puzzled about why life is the way it is. And one of the grids we have is that kings ride on horses and slaves sit on a ground or on the ground. That kings are the ones that are honored in high places, and it is the poor that are in low places. And yet he says how foolish the world actually is, because sometimes poor are elevated and rich are demoted. The kings are demoted and the peasants are elevated. So why does that matter? I think it matters in two, re two ways, in two, two reasons. One is that there is a way that we can look at people in places of honor and think, oh man, they're awesome, they're great, wow, look at their life. And what the author is saying, uh, pause for a second, because there's a lot of people in places of honor that are foolish and dumb. 
there are a lot of people that get a lot of praise because of the position they're in, and they should not be in that position at all because they are not discerning, they're not wise. And so be careful to not just ascribe praise and honor to someone because of their position without checking their character. But it also gives us a guard for ourselves, doesn't it? How often do you get a place of honor? You're like, look at me. I'm awesome. Yeah, everyone's giving me praise. This feels so good in this moment. Yeah. And guess what the author just said? You might be a fool. It feels really good to get that praise. But guess what? Sometimes fools are in that place of praise. So cool your jets for a moment. Because you might not be as great as what you think. In fact, the world is so weird that you might have been elevated despite you. So instead of walking around with your chest puffed out and thinking how great you are, realize you might actually be the fool. So we can't base our confidence on our circumstance, but rather we have to base our confidence on Christ and Christ alone. But that's not the only way this folly works. This folly actually works out in speed. Look at verses 8 to 9. So often we're quick. We just want to get things done quickly. Look at how this works. He who digs a pit will fall into it. Well, why would they dig a pit? To trap animals. So you'd quickly dig a pit. You'd find stuff to put over the pit so that hopefully an animal get, would fall into it and you could kill it and either eat it for food or, or protect your crops or whatever happens. But think about if you're digging holes quickly and quickly covering over them, what might happen to you? You forget where you dug a pit and you end up in it. Or maybe that analogy doesn't make sense. What about this one? A serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. So if you go down to the river, there's all these stones that form a wall. And I was walking past her the other day thinking about this and, and seeing those stones and how easy it would be for us to take those stones out thinking, I need to build a wall on my property, so I'm going to quickly take those stones out, load up a pickup truck, and move them. But what would happen if you're in a hurry to take those stones out? What might be in there? A snake ready to bite your hand if you're not careful. What about this one? Verse 9, he who quarries stones is hurt by them. You're digging through a rock pit trying to get stones and you're going so quick that you eventually chip a stone and it hits you. I feel like I do this when I edge my grass sometimes. Anybody else have this? Like you're, you're edging your grass or you know, weed eating. And if you're not thoughtful, you're not mindful, all of a sudden, boom, rock hits you right in the head. Because I just want to get the job done rather than thinking about the danger. In fact, he says the same thing with log. Uh, verse 9, that he who splits logs is endangered by them. Again, very, very quick. And yet is able to be hurt. So quick, look at verse 10. That if the iron is blunt, so you're in such a hurry that you're just wanting to chop this down. You don't care how sharp it is. So you don't sharpen the edge, you end up hurt 
by it because you have to use more and more and more strength to chop that wood. There's an adage that says sometimes going 65 gets you there faster than going 100. Because if you go 100, you end up in a car accident. But if you go 65, you actually make it. Some of us feel things so much that we want to move the earth to fix it right now. And if everybody else doesn't get on board with fixing that problem right now, we're angry. And we're going to do everything we can because it's got to be fixed now. What do the authors say? All you're doing is hurting yourself and hurting others. Maybe, maybe slow down a little bit. But then he moves on to speech. Okay? Speech. There's a path of folly with our words. Look at verse 12 through 15. The words of the wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. Ever tasted shoe leather before? Figuratively? Like stuck your foot in your mouth? Because you aren't wise about what to say and how to say it, and, and, and you're too flippant in that moment. And people typically dismiss you, right? Your words consume you. Because notice what he says in verse 13. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. So from beginning to end, the fool just talks, and it is all foolishness. It is all mad. It is all, all craziness. And what does this person typically do? They don't learn. Look at verse 14. They just continue talking. A fool multiplies his words. Though no man knows what is to be and who can tell him what will be after him, you try to talk to this person, and all they do is just keep talking and talking and talking and talking. They have all the answers. Proverbs 18.2 tells us that a fool takes no pleasure in understanding. They just want to express their own opinion. Ever been around that person? Ever been that person? The fool, look at verse 15, the fool, the toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. This is a person that just keeps fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting with their words, and they keep speaking, and yet they have no idea what they are talking about. First Timothy tells us that these are the kind of people, in chapter 1, 17, or we, we see actually chapter 1, verses 6 to 7, that these are the people that make confident assertions. They're confident about what they say, even though they have no idea what they're saying. And Paul tells Timothy to be careful of them. Do you see a theme here? That, that the author is wanting us to have humility. Because if we don't, this kind of foolishness will overtake us. 
He's wanting us to see these kinds of signs so that we get off of the path of folly and begin to walk in the path of godliness and righteousness and that we use our words to help others get off the path of folly and get on the path of righteousness. And so we need to see what is this path so that we can help one another. And the author shows us one last path that is here, and it's a path of self-indulgence. Look at verses 16 to 20. He says, Woe to you, O land, when your child, when your king is a child. Does this guy hate kids? No. But what's true about kids? They want what they want, when they want it, and they will do it everything they can to get it. Isn't that true? All the parents are like, yeah, that's true. Right? He says, woe to you when that is your king. Somebody who just wants what they want, when they want it, and will use all of their power and might to get what they want. So woe to you. And woe to you when your priests feast in the morning. What's the problem with feasting in the morning? Well, there's a couple of them. You haven't worked, so you haven't earned it. And if you've ever had biscuits and gravy in the morning, anybody ever have biscuits and gravy in the morning? Okay, right? They are delicious. But what do you want to do after you've had biscuits and gravy in the morning? You want to sleep the rest of the day. That's, that really should not be a breakfast food. That should be a dinner food. Because I don't want to do anything on my list after I've had that. These princes just want to feast. They just want to have a good time. They don't want to do work. And he says, whoa, 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 that, that's not good. That mentality to play before you work. No, we need to learn the mentality that work comes before play. This mentality that, that we should live differently than the world. And how so? Look at verse 17. He actually says, happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility. Well, what does that mean? A king is the son of nobility. That means the king, when he was a little boy, learned from his dad how to be a king. And so when he became the king, he knew exactly what to do. And all the people are saying, yes, they are happy. Because this guy knows what to do. This guy knows how to be a king. This guy knows how to lead. And they're grateful. And they're also grateful. Look at 17 again. When your princes feast at the proper time. When they feast for strength. When they eat because they want to be strong to protect and to provide for the city. All the citizens are saying thank you. Versus when they get drunk and have no ability to provide or protect. You see, their mentality of self-indulgence is all about me, 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 and yet happiness is when you submit yourself to God and you, out of that submission, serve other people. Because if not, look at verses 18 and 19. Through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, which is really a, a rudeness or an arrogance, the house Leaks, what does a sloth do? They don't really do much, do they? 
You're lazy. And at that point, the house roof will sink in and the house will leak because all they care about is themselves. To the point in verse 19 that that they think bread is just for them, their own laughter. They drink wine to gladden their life. They think money, if I just throw money at everything, it'll fix it all. Because I don't want to get involved. I don't want to actually have to get up off the couch. Let me just throw money at it. Now, if you're following the line of thinking, how are you feeling at this moment with these kind of people in charge? I'm pretty angry. And it's as if the author recognizes that because notice the encouragement for us. He says, even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. It's so easy in that moment to just think, man, if if only. He says, don't go there because a bird of the air will carry your voice and some winged creature will tell the matter. If they're that self-indulgent and you're going around talking about how terrible they are, uh, somebody's going to hear that and take it to them and it's going to bring destruction to you. So he says, be careful. And at this point, we're left with two thoughts. We're left with a thought that we need to live by wisdom because we see that, man, when I, when I get caught by folly, man, it is powerful. We have now seen the path of folly, and I want to now protect myself against that path. So the question really comes, how do we overcome this folly? Well, that's what we see lastly, which is the prescription for folly. And to see this prescription, we have to look at the passage that we read earlier in Romans chapter 6. And so if you can, turn to Romans chapter 6 with me. Romans is three quarters of the way through your Bible. It's after uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans, Romans 6. We read in chapter 5 of Romans that you and I are uh, born into sin and we're born with a sinful nature, which means that we want to do sinful things. And then we do sinful things. But yet, God, in in verse 8 of chapter 5, but God demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died. That when you and I were running away, rebelling against God, Christ came into the world and he died the death that you and I should die and he rose from the dead conquering sin and death. And now chapter 6 unpacks that glorious truth. Look at verse 5. He says, if we have been united with him, that's Christ, in a death like his, we will surely, certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That if you believe in Jesus Christ, as he died, you died. And as he rose from the dead, you rose from the dead. And this is the importance for us. Look at verse 6. Because we know that our old self was crucified with Christ. In order, this is the purpose or the reason, that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. And hear this glorious truth. 
so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. How is that, Paul? Verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead, he will never die again because death no longer has dominion over him. Church, do you see the prescription for the folly? You and I are born into folly. We are born loving folly. We are born to do and participate in folly. And the only way out of it is by turning to Christ, by recognizing that you have folly and that you love folly, by repenting of that, by returning to Christ and seeing that when he died, I died. When he rose, I rose. That sin and death no longer have dominion over me, but now I can walk in the newness of life. I can now run with Christ. So the way in which we fight this folly is that we turn from ourselves and we turn to Christ. And we see the beauty and the power that he now gives. And we rest in Christ. And we walk by the power of the Holy Spirit. Take any of Paul's letters. We can go to Ephesians where he unpacks the gospel for the first three chapters. And in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Or we can go to Galatians where he unpacks the beauty that when Jesus died and rose from the dead and we put our faith in Jesus, we are declared right with God. And in that moment, we are given the Holy Spirit. And so now Paul can command us to walk by the Spirit. To keep in step with the Spirit, to be empowered by the Spirit of God to the point that Paul says in Romans 8.1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Is that a truth that is so sweet to you? We sang this morning, come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. The invitation is not for people who have it together. The invitation is for people who recognize that they don't have it together, but knows who does have it together and runs to and runs with the one who holds it all together, Jesus Christ. Is that true of you this morning? Are you one that has run to and is wanting to run with Jesus Christ? Or are you numb to the things of the Holy Spirit and the things of God 
because instead of dealing with your folly, you have drowned out your folly with further folly from the world. Might I invite you back to the foot of the cross to see that Christ paid for that. He gives forgiveness for that. But then he empowers us to live a very different life and to build on the foundation of Christ. You know, Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, he tells us what a wise man is. You know what a wise man is? He's one that hears the words of Christ and he builds his life upon those words. Because it's the fool that is so quick to build his life on sand. Man, loves the ocean, loves the beach. I grew up in California. I laugh. I probably shouldn't, but I laugh when rich people's houses fall. And it's like, did you know you were building your house on sand on the side of a cliff? Like you had all this money, all this engineering. Like, did you not think that that wouldn't happen? Like, I don't want people to be destroyed, but like, come on. Like, I don't have money, but I know that if you build it on the side of a cliff, it's going to fall into the ocean. And Jesus says, that's exactly what your life is like when you try to build upon shifting sand. But if you build on the words of Christ, it is a solid rock. So when the rains fall and the winds beat and blow on that house, it will not fall because it's been built on Jesus Christ. Is your life built with a solid foundation on Jesus Christ? I hope so. Let's pray. Father, your word is so true and so good and so timely for us. How we need every week to just resubmit ourselves to you because there is much folly in this world and, and we give ourselves to this folly and, and we are enticed by it. And so, Father, I, I just pray that you would change our hearts and change our minds. Help us to seek wisdom, to savor your wisdom instead, and to build our lives upon the solid rock of Christ, I pray in your son's precious name, amen.